and then turn to Proverbs 14 for our Lectio Continuo, a little Latin here, uh, verses 26 to 30. <clears throat> this is the wisdom of God, as the Father teaches his Son. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without a people, a prince is ruined. Whoever is Slow to anger, has great understanding, but he who is a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. True wisdom. <clears throat> we will be reading Psalm 75. Let's pray. Again, we turn to you, Father in heaven, who gave us your Son for our salvation, who gives us your word that we may know your Son and in him find wisdom for life. So we pray that your grace, the work of your Spirit, would enable us to understand your word, to take it to heart, to grow thereby and bring glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for us to turn to Psalm 75. I hope that sounds familiar to you. We've been singing it, what, seven times this month so far. <laughs> and uh, it'll be an eighth time after this service. So... We have the practice here of having a psalm of the month. That's a wonderful way to become acquainted with our Psalter hymnal. Uh, but I think it's good for more than that. Uh, but I have a question. At the beginning of the month, when we're first introduced to the psalm of the month, uh, do you ever go home and read that psalm? Or maybe as a family, for your family worship, read that psalm and uh, give thought to it, give prayer to it. Now, many of you have been reading the psalms for years, maybe for decades, and uh, so you may be familiar with the psalms. You'd be surprised, however, when you get down to it and really study uh, how you can learn that you've made assumptions about understanding things you didn't really understand. And, uh, and so I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to do this. Uh, to take the psalm of the month at, be at the beginning of the month and uh, not just sing it in church, but read it and meditate on it at home. Now, there's an important point here. Uh, whenever we sing to God, whenever we sing about God, we must be 
doing so with understanding and with the awareness that we are singing the truth about God. So it better be true. And the Psalms, what? They're inspired by the Lord. Uh, you may have confidence when you sing the Psalms that you are singing God's truth. Uh, so, uh, Psalm 75, uh, it has a heading. It's a liturgical heading. Uh, you can search out Asaph, uh, the history behind him. Uh, he didn't himself, the, the guy, the man Asaph, who's referred to as being appointed by David to be one of the Levitical choir directors, uh, of course, he didn't live for several hundred years to compose all the psalms that are attributed to him, but uh, he did establish a school, if you will, of, uh, of liturgical leaders, choir leaders, uh, and I think a lot of the psalms attributed to him in the headings are out of that school of psalm writers. <clears throat> My point is that it, the Psalm 75 was, was written for a liturgical setting. The congregation comes together. Now, that could be for one of the great feast days at the temple uh, in Jerusalem, or it could be uh, for the weekly Sabbath convocations in their villages and towns throughout Israel. Uh, we know that they did gather. That's, that's the point of uh, Leviticus 23, verse 3, which is the beginning of two chapters of when they're supposed to worship God. And the, and the very first verse there, verse 23, 3, is uh, every week you are to have a holy convocation in the place where you live. So they had some kind, we don't know what the content of it was, but... Uh, and I'm, I'm rambling. Uh, <clears throat> the psalm begins in a very straightforward way, <clears throat> giving thanks to God. Uh, the we is the congregation that is gathered to worship. We give thanks to you, O God. So that would be us here tonight <clears throat> and wherever God's people gather. Uh, or it may be the Levitical choir in the courts of the temple. We don't have enough information to know. Uh, but I think we can say that it is we. We are, we are the priests and Levites before the Lord in Jesus Christ now. <clears throat> Excuse me, try not to lose my voice. Uh, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We'll talk about that in a moment. We recount your wondrous deeds. Now then at verse 2, there's an abrupt change. This, this is all kind of introductory right now. There's an abrupt change of speaker and audience. Verse 1, the speaker is the congregation or the choir speaking to God. He's the audience. Now, uh, who's speaking? Who's the audience? Is God speaking? Is God speaking to his people? Uh, how do we know? Well, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. Now, only God can say that. Uh, and only God can say uh, the, the things that follow in verses 3, 4, and 5. And so here we have God speaking to us. Now, this is not unusual in the Psalms, but you need to have your ears perked up to catch it. Uh, Psalm 32, for instance, uh, begins with, with David's uh, praising God for uh, the, the wonder of God's grace and forgiving his sin when he finally got to repenting of it. Uh, it is his testimony to the people of God. But then... Uh, there's, there's more to Psalm 32 than just that. But then, uh, 
I got to find it. I thought I had the page marked. Uh, then, partway down in the psalm, it's clear, not clear to me, it's clear that it's not David speaking any longer. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That's not David. That's God. That's the Lord. Uh, speaking to his people. David is speaking to the people of God. His testimony, calling upon them to draw near to God and call upon God as he had done. But now God is speaking to his people, saying, I will instruct you. Don't be like a horse or a mule that's too stubborn to pay attention and respond the way you should. And then David closes the psalm in verses 10 and 11. So you have these, uh, these, and these aren't the only psalms. Uh, where you want to be alert to who's actually speaking and to whom they are speaking uh, <clears throat> in order to catch the meaning and significance of what you're reading. Uh, back to Psalm 75. Uh, in verses 2 through 5, we do have the words of the Lord, uh, possibly speaking through a prophet in the service. That's offered as a theory by some commentators. I don't think I agree with it. Uh, I, I think the psalmist himself is the prophet, if you will, and, and through him God is speaking uh, to all his people. Uh, <clears throat> and he's declaring to the congregation uh, the supremacy of God over the nations, and especially in his judgments. We'll come back to that. And then finally, in verses 9 and 10, uh, the leader, the worship leader, speaks again. Uh, I know that it's not God speaking because he's speaking about God. And, and so it uh, could be the liturgist who was leading the service to begin with. Uh, could be somebody else. But then verses 9 and 10 are interesting, and we'll come to this too. I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. So it's not God who's saying this, but then all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Were the Levites, the worship leaders, given authority to cut off exalted horns? <laughs> what in the world does that mean? We'll come to that. Uh, I think not. Uh, and uh, so we'll talk about who's, who may be speaking there in those verses. Well, <clears throat> in the ancient Jewish tradition, Psalm 75 uh, was located at the time its setting was located at the time of God's deliverance of Judah and Jerusalem uh, from, the, uh, from the Assyrian threat. Uh, and it helps to know, and you read about this in Kings and Chronicles and in Isaiah 36 and 37. It helps to know that up until that time, as far as we know, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, Tiglath-Pileser III and these guys, if that means anything to you, uh, had not failed to conquer a foe. They'd been undefeated. And now their general stands beneath the walls of uh, Jerusalem and, and says, <laughs> what are the gods of these other cities that we've got? What did they do to save their people? You shouldn't be trusting in your God. He won't be any better than those other gods. And you shouldn't listen to Hezekiah who tells you to trust God. That is so foolish. We're going to wipe you out. But if you surrender... We'll send you to another country, give you horses, give you vineyards, give you farms, and you'll have a great life. Uh, 
He's mocking God, making promises, and uh, hoping to conquer. And <clears throat> we read that uh, in one night, the entire Assyrian army was wiped out by a plague in the Judean city that they were besieging at the time. They hadn't yet arrived with the whole army at Jerusalem. That, that was the next target. But they, they were all killed. And the emperor went back to Assyria, and his sons killed him. So, put no trust in princes. They're just going to die. And that's certainly illustrated here. The Lord, the Lord, had delivered his people. And, and so, if the, if the ancient view of the uh, Jewish commentators is right now, they were closer to it than we are, uh, <clears throat> then I can well imagine the people just, wow, God's wondrous deeds. It's amazing. We could not have defeated that army. But God did. And they didn't even know how. Little bugs, germs. What did they know about germs? It was the angel. Of, as far as they were concerned, it was God. It was the angel of God passing through the Assyrian camp. And that was it. They were delivered by the wondrous deeds of God. We give thanks to you, O God. Now, <clears throat> it's uh, something we should bear in mind, I think, that the Old Testament scriptures are not just history. And the Psalms are very ancient songs, some of them 3,000 years or more old. Uh, but it's not a museum. It's not a museum of ancient worship by a strange people. They were strange to us. Their culture was strange to us. But the Psalms were composed, the whole Old Testament was written, but the Psalms included <clears throat> for God's people in all ages and in all places on earth where the gospel is preached and people come to faith in Christ and become part of the Israel of God. Jews and Gentiles who've been brought by Christ, who conquers by his spirit and word, have been brought into the kingdom of God as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. So these psalms are for us. Uh, and they point, <clears throat> uh, they point not just to the display of God's mighty works, Psalm 75, delivering Judah and Jerusalem from the Assyrian, but to God's mighty works in Jesus Christ. Uh, in him, we have deliverance from a far worse enemy than the king of Assyria. Sin, sin, and Satan, uh, and his demons, and the uh, powers of this world arrayed against the living God and his Christ and his people. Uh, <clears throat> We have great deliverance in Christ. And that should be at the heart of our saying, we give thanks to you, O God. Now these <clears throat> verses that follow, 2 through 5, <clears throat> in them God declares his sovereignty. At the time I set, I will judge. He declares that he will judge. And I don't think this is just referring to the final judgment when Christ comes again but to the multitude of judgments which God has poured out upon nations in their rebellion against him and their hatred of his people. Uh, 
God is the judge of nations. And then thirdly, he judges with equity. Nations and people are judged according to their deeds, <clears throat> not out of spite or some irrational anger that takes delight in consuming and torturing people, but a just and equitable dispensing of justice to those whose deeds deserve it. Whether it's nations, rulers of nations, or humble citizens, ordinary people, we all stand before God. And, you know, we are citizens of a nation that has been guilty of an awful lot of arrogance. And we need to hear what is said here. God says to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. We'll talk about the horn in a minute. But there is a warning here to the enemies of God, to the enemies of his people. And it's not just a warning to Putin or the dear brother who rules North Korea or to Xi Jinping who thinks he's godlike in his power. Uh, it's a warning. It's a warning to nations that turn their backs on God and turn their faces against his people and the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. <clears throat> when I set the time, I will judge with equity. Don't boast. Don't lift up your horn in arrogance. Well, let's mention the horn. Uh, you may have run across this in scripture, especially in the Psalms. Uh, and think of bulls. Big strong bull with his horns. Uh, I was once warned by about a bull that had got loose in town, and I better be careful walking home from the post office. <laughs> I'll tell you the rest of the story sometime, but not now. Uh, but uh, I think that's that's the uh, you know the this that's the this world reality that gave rise to the idiom about the horn. So the horn, as we read about it here and there in the Psalms and other scriptures. Uh, it's a symbol of strength, and particularly a symbol of the power of rulers, kings and rulers. Uh, David is said to, you know, the Lord blesses David's horn in, in one of the Psalms. Uh, so don't lift up your horn. You rulers, it's like Psalm 1. Rulers gather together, they rebel against the Lord, they're going to throw off his Chains, but then at the end of the psalm, kiss the sun. Be wise, you rulers of the earth. Bow before Jesus. Submit to him. Trust in him. All who trust in him will not be ashamed. Uh, <clears throat> so, it's a warning. But now, I, I don't think the psalmist was going around, uh, you know, doing a tour of the Near Eastern countries, preaching this psalm to uh, the rulers. I think the audience for this declaration by God is, is his own people. And his point is to 
uh, give a certain kind of comfort and encouragement to them to know that, uh, yes, these nations like these awful polytheistic, idol-worshipping, military-worshipping, conquest-worshipping Assyrians and others like them, God's going to deal with them. He'll deal with them in his time, but he's going to deal with them. <clears throat> so in the modern parlance, chill, dude. And, you know, today, today, the church of Jesus Christ really needs to hear that. How many people are just going half mad, worried about what China's going to do, what Putin's going to do, what uh, the Islamists are going to do? Well, they're probably going to do terrible things. And it could be that just as the last century was the American century, this may be the Chinese century. I don't know. I don't know what God has planned. But it certainly looks like something that could be. And that wouldn't be good, outwardly speaking, for Christian people. It's not good. It's not easy to be a Christian in China right now. It's very hard to be a Christian in China right now. Many of them are in prison. Some are even tortured to try to get them to betray other Christians and, and tell lies about their pastors so they can be put in prison for 15 years in a labor camp. These things happen. <clears throat> but God's got it in hand. And we read on, verses eight, uh, 6 through 8, uh, now it's not, it's not the Lord who's speaking, it's, it's whoever's leading the service, I, I think, if it's a liturgical situation. <laughs> Uh, that uh, it, it's not from the east, it's not from the west, it's not from the wilderness that comes lifting up. What, what, is, what is going to lift up God's people? What is going to put them in a good position, a safe place? It isn't alliances with countries to the north, to the east, to the west, or in the wilderness. Israel is constantly tempted to this. We'll make an alliance with Egypt. They'll come to our rescue. They'll defeat the Assyrians. And, and God, through Isaiah, says, trusting Egypt is like leaning on a broken reed. It'll just run through your hand. Uh, who should you be trusting in, Judah, Jerusalem, king? The Lord. He's the one and the only one who can lift you up. It is God who executes judgment. He puts down one, he lifts up another. That sounds like the song of Hannah in Samuel 2. For Samuel 2, it sounds like the song of Mary in uh, Luke 1. Uh, it's up to God who rises, who falls. Uh, that was uh, a lesson certainly graphically given to Nebuchadnezzar as he strode about on his, the balcony of his palace and looked out and he said, Oh, look at the great kingdom that I have made, the great city that I have built. I, have, I am so great. And in that moment, God struck him with insanity. And, and he was raving like, a, like an animal and ended up out in the fields eating grass like a cow until God gave him grace to look up and realize, I am just a creature of God dependent on him for everything. And then God restored his sanity. Some people think he was saved. I don't know about that. I think the point is <clears throat> that God humbled a man to teach him. A great man in the eyes of the world humbled a great man to teach him and everybody who had ears to hear the lesson. It's God who appoints rulers. It's God who exalts rulers. It's God who casts rulers down. And you can read Isaiah 40 
uh, about the greatness of God. And, and what are the nations of the world? Well, they're like drops in a bucket. They're just little nothings from God's point of view. And, you know, however, uh, think, of, think of David, other, well, David, Psalm 29, uh, you know, when he talks about this, the, the mighty works of, of the creation, the, the storm coming in from the sea and breaking the cedars of Lebanon. We heard that this morning from our pastor uh, in the sermon. <clears throat> Uh, or look up at the heavens. What is man? You're mindful of him. It, you know, looking up at the heavens made the psalmist, uh, made Jeremiah, somebody else, Job, I think, feel very small indeed. Very small. Which is proper. How big do we know the heavens to be now? <laughs> they thought it was a big bowl over their heads with some lights in it. We know that it extends beyond the reach of our imagination. And God made it. Our hope is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And he's the one who lifts up. He's the one who puts down. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. with foaming wine well mixed. Sounds like a good drink, doesn't it? <laughs> Go to the bar and order one of these. You don't want to order this drink. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth drain it down to the dregs. What is this cup? Well, it's an image. It's a poetic image. <clears throat> uh, you find it referred to in other places in scripture I lost my way in my notes on Jeremiah <laughs> God tells Jeremiah to take this cup of wine this cup of foaming wine to the nations around for them to drink now of course again Jeremiah didn't get on a train and travel all those nations around. It's, it's poetic, if you will. But it's God saying what he's going to do to those nations. And the cup is the cup of the wrath of God. That the nations who worship false gods, <clears throat> who have no, no heart for the true and living God, those nations are doomed to drink the cup of the wrath of God. In this era in which we live, we, we, we see that. Uh, I, I don't know how many I don't know how many pictures I've seen of the cities of Germany after World War II. They drank the cup of wrath. And many, many, many others. I pray that we will not have to, as a nation, drink the cup of wrath. But I think as a nation, we deserve it. And the answer is not put your confidence in rulers or in political parties, but preach Christ and live Christ and pray that God pours out 
not a cup of wrath, but a cup of grace. And when we read of this cup, does it ring any bells with you? You think of Christ in the garden? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's not talking about fine wine, but the cup of the wrath of God that we deserve. He drank it. He drank it to the bottom of the people the Father gave him, the people for whom he came into this world, that he might do all that is necessary to raise us to life with him forever. Even if the nation we live in has to drink a cup of God's wrath, you who belong to Jesus will not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. The cup we drink is the cup which we drank this morning. The cup that points us to the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for us. The cup that we will share with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb in that glorious coming day. It's a wonderful thing to contemplate and to meditate on. Well, we come to, I think I skipped something, but we come to verses 9 and 10. I will declare it forever. Declare what forever? Well, declare what has been declared in the preceding verses, that God is the sovereign ruler, that the nations are subject to him, that he will judge when and where he wishes, and he will judge with equity. And the proud and the arrogant and the wicked will be put down. They'll drink a cup of God's wrath. That's what the speaker in verse 9 says he will declare. I will declare this forever. I will sing the praises of the God of Jacob. So whoever is speaking is, is declaring God's praises. It isn't God speaking as he was in verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> but what does he go on to say all the horns of the wicked I will cut off but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up now I don't know any Levite who had authority from God to cut off the might and power and arrogance of wicked rulers they might have had authority to declare the word of God to them the law of God to them and call them to repentance but this seems to be stronger language than that Now, sometimes the king did lead the worshiping congregation. Uh, David dancing before the ark. Uh, David's psalms composed for the public worship of God. Uh, Solomon at the dedication of the temple, his exhortations and that uh, marvelous prayer that he prayed for the Lord uh, to have mercy on his people. Uh, I mean, there were times when it was appropriate for the anointed king of the covenant people of God to have a leadership role in their worship. But who ultimately, who ultimately is going to sing the praises of God and cut off the horns of the wicked? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. If you read uh, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, I love this, it's, uh, 
it kind of slides right by and you, you don't necessarily notice it because you're thinking about the Christology of this passage and, and uh, can easily miss what's said here. Uh, I got to keep talking while I look for it. Here we are. Uh, Hebrews 2. Uh, and we come to this verse that was again referred to this morning. Our Savior is not ashamed to call them brothers, to call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Psalm 22, verse 22. Who leads our worship? Well, we all like Michael, Pastor Michael. But when he's leading worship, it's really Christ who is present by the Holy Spirit, leading the worship of his church. It is Christ who is, as our Messiah, as our man at the right hand of the Father, it is Christ who is singing praises to the God of Jacob and leading us in that worship. It is Christ who, having conquered death and hell and Satan, is now about the business of cutting off the horns of the wicked and will do so in a final, complete way at his coming again. And it is in Christ that horns of righteousness will be lifted up. Horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Who's righteous? Well, in union with Jesus Christ, we are righteous in him. He is our righteousness. And when he, by the Spirit and the Word, brings us to himself, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. We call that justification. Well, Paul calls that justification, so we call it justification. But it's Christ who will put down the wicked, destroy their power. I don't know that we will laugh on that day. It may be too overwhelmingly awesome. But to see the arrogant, you know, to see the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Xi Jinpings and, and, and people of their ilk, maybe just people like that who rule, who rule the company we work for and make life miserable, to see them receive the equity, the just equity that they deserve as they are cast into the lake of fire. There is satisfaction to that, and uh, the Apostle Paul uh, does say so in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. The, Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica was severely persecuted. Uh, Paul had to sneak out of town to save his neck, and uh, he left behind a congregation that uh, suffered for the sake of Christ, but remained faithful. And, and so he writes to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, that uh, their perseverance under trial is evidence of God's righteous judgment. Uh, verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of his might. Pray for arrogant rulers. In our own country, in our own cities. Pray for arrogant big shots. They don't have to be rulers of nations, just big shots. Because God will bring them low if they don't repent. God-defying arrogant rulers of this world are all just men. And they're all under judgment. Some are already in hell, and others are going there unless they turn to the Lord, unless they bow to Jesus in repentance and faith. They need to hear the gospel. But his church will never perish. Though it may pass through deep valleys of suffering to arrive at last in the city whose maker is God. And we will say, we give thanks to you, O God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are part of a vast company of sinners, rebels against you, who have been conquered by your grace and love in Jesus Christ and by the power of your spirit. We thank you that we have fellowship with believers around this world, some of them suffering even now uh, great persecution, and we pray for them. Pray that their eyes may be open to see by faith the glory of Christ, their Savior, enthroned at your right hand, always interceding for them and watching over them, and welcoming them home when the time comes. We pray, O oh God, for those who are living their lives under judgment because they are arrogant and blind and willfully, willfully blind. They shake their fist against heaven. And they would intimidate your people. Grant us grace, O God, grant your church grace to look past those puny men and their puny means to the great Savior and King we have enthroned in heaven. And help us, O Lord, when we're told that we should not bother people with the gospel of Christ. To not only pray for them, but also to bother them with the gospel of Christ, that they might be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.